Leviticus chapter 27, beginning with verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, and we'll see, according to verse 34, that God is continuing to speak from Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord according to your valuation, if your valuation is of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Up front, Leviticus 27 is one of the more challenging sections to unpack for one reason. There is very little written on this chapter. Sadly, burnout becomes a significant factor. You see, by this point in most expositional studies of what is a difficult and cumbersome book, the Bible teacher is, well, kind of ready to be done and move on to something else. Like seriously, most audio commentaries you'll find simply tag this chapter onto the end of chapter 26. If you doubt me, take some time this week and see how much commentary you can find on Leviticus 27. And from my perspective, I think this is really an unforced error. Aside from my desire to finish our series as strong as we began, it's a fact that any chapter containing 34 verses of God's Word demands our careful attention and consideration. Aside from that, what many fail to see and what I hope to articulate this morning is how relevant and applicational this subject matter is in our day and age. Now, broadly speaking, in Leviticus 27, God places a practical evaluation or a monetary value on a person's generosity. For example, let's say you were moved to give a material possession to the Lord. The problem was that God was not exactly into stockpiling resources or having the priest maintain these type of offerings. In this situation where you wanted to give a possession to God, the reality, the understanding, was that you would immediately then buy it back. So I want to give something, I give it to God, but, but the assumption is I'm going to buy it back so that then the gift has a practical benefit, monetary, financial, towards the ministry. As we work our way through the text, you'll see in verses 9 through 13 that God addresses what's, what they're to do with animals. Verses 14 and 15, He'll address houses. Verses 16 through 25, the Lord will address fields or land. Beyond material possessions, <clears throat> verse 2 sets the stage for a dynamic whereby you felt inclined to dedicate yourself to the service of God or one of your children. While the gesture is noble and commendable, the problem for most within Israel centered on the fact that while the desire was there, not everybody was a Levite, and therefore most people were excluded from much of the work itself. In this situation, an evaluation of what you were worth would be made based on several physical characteristics. And instead of actually serving God at the tabernacle, Based on that evaluation, you would make a donation to support the priests who are doing the work. Look back, actually, at verse 2. We read, When a man consecrates by a vow certain persons to the Lord, according to your evaluation, the situation being described presents an individual, a person, wanting to dedicate themselves to the Lord. 
They want to spend their life in the service of God. A great example of this type of vow being made, you can find in the first two chapters of 1 Samuel. You have this woman named Hannah. She comes to the tabernacle and she prays for the Lord to grant her a son, for she was barren. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we read that Hannah was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and give me a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. Her son would, would be a Nazarite. As the story unfolds, again in these first two chapters, God hears her prayer. And in the process, grants her a child, a son she names Samuel. In accordance with her vow, once Samuel had been weaned, she brings him to the tabernacle and gives him to the high priest, a man named Eli. Samuel was to serve the Lord. I actually want to, let me read you a little section. I, I think it's pretty adorable. But 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 18 and 21 says that Samuel ministered before, before the Lord, even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother Hannah used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer their yearly sacrifice. Eli would bless them, and he said, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. So they went back home, and the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived. And she would bear three sons and two daughters. Samuel, the child, would grow before the Lord. In our text, the assumption and what's really addressed in the verses to follow is, is that the person, whether it was yourself or one of your children, while you were dedicating yourself to the Lord, for whatever reason, you weren't exactly able to serve the Lord at the tabernacle. The heart was there, but the opportunity wasn't. For some, they weren't Levites in more extreme situations like a post-exile Judaism where, where people are scattered throughout the world. Like In that dynamic, it's, it's impossible to even get there to fulfill the calling. So in the dynamic where you want to dedicate yourself to the Lord, but practically you can't, evaluation was to be made, determining what your service would have been worth according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And instead of serving, a monetary offering would be made, financial offering. On a side note, if you hear or come across someone like definitively saying they know how much a shekel of the sanctuary was worth, uh, they're, <laughs> they're misinformed. Like we know a shekel was an ancient currency based upon the weight of gold or silver or copper, but the truth is that no one can really say for sure what a shekel was worth, what the evaluation was at this point in human history. Now, an example of how this practically manifests is found for us in verse 3. Look back. If your evaluation is of a male, 20 years old or up to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. So if you're a male, ranging 20 up to 60, you want to serve the Lord, the opportunity is not there. The monetary evaluation, so what you would give in place of your service, it would be 50 shekels. And, and it's worth noting the valuation was solely determined, this is important, by potential productivity regarding physical labor. Things like social position or talent wasn't considered at all. Verse 4, if it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. If it's a five-year-old, 
up to a 20-year-old, your evaluation for a male shall be 20 shekels, for a female, 10 shekels. If from a month old up to five years old, then your evaluation for a male shall be five shekels of silver. For a female, your evaluation shall be three shekels of silver. And if from 60 years old and above, it is a male, your evaluation shall be 15 shekels for a female, 10 shekels. But if he, so the person making the vow, is too poor to pay this evaluation... Then he shall present himself to the priest. The priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed. The priest shall value him. Just quickly recapping. If you're a male, the value of your service broke down as follows. If you were a month old to five, it was five shekels of silver. From five to 20, 20 shekels. 20 to 60, 50 shekels. If you were over the age of 60, well, it would be 15 shekels. Now, if you're a female, a month old to five, it would be three shekels of silver. From five to 20, 10 shekels. From 20 to 60, 30 shekels. And if you were over the age of 60, your valuation was also 10 shekels. Because the value was solely determined on physical productivity, it makes sense why both age and gender were the contributing factors. But what's interesting about these verses is that Aside from presenting this general set of guidelines, if the situation presented where you were unable to pay what the guidelines stipulated, well, the priest could set a value according to your ability to actually pay. Now, the first relevant point of application, and yes, this, there's an application to this, is that God, and don't miss it, God views supporting the ministry financially as being equal to actually doing the work of the ministry. You see, the Lord knew in His economy that not everyone would be able to serve in a full-time capacity, or, for that matter, capable. Amazingly, He created a dynamic where anyone could contribute and be a part of the work regardless. You know, in our New Testament context, the Holy Spirit gives all of us, every one of us, gifts and, and abilities and talents. But not all of these gifts serve the, the, the church body in the same way. For example, the role of a pastor-teacher, it's unique. It's unique because it demands an ample amount of time to study and to pray and to prepare. I take a lot of time to craft this particular Bible study. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, the priests in the Old Testament, they had a role to play in Israel. But their role could never have been accomplished if the other 11 tribes didn't support them. You see, as God saw things, one role wasn't greater or more important than the other. Another great example of this idea in motion would be missions. Like you might have a heart to go, a heart for overseas missions, but presently you're not actually able to go. Like, you can't quit your job, uproot your family, and go into the mission field. Like, for, for whatever reason, whether it's, it's teenagers or elderly parents restricting your ability to just, to just travel out into foreign lands, for some, the heart for missions might be there. But the opportunity, really not. Like, it's just not feasible. And yet, what, what's amazing about this passage is that that's okay. <laughs> For you can still support the people who are able. 
You see, what this passage, these eight verses tell us is that everyone can be an equal part of the ministry or mission by supporting missionaries and ministers. In God's economy, according to the precedent established here, the person supporting the work will have an equal reward as those doing the work. I think that's so cool. Verse 9, if it's an animal that men may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not substitute it or exchange it. Good for bad or bad for good. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. If it is an unclean animal, which they do not offer as a sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest. And the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad. As you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if he wants at all to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth to your evaluation. When it came to animals that were used as an offering to the Lord, so these would be animals like lambs and goats, doves, pigeons, oxen, bulls, like such gifts, because they had a practical value, practical use in the, in the tabernacle, if you felt inclined to give them, the priests were very inclined to accept them. Like you didn't have to purchase them back. Now, the only stipulation to this was a dynamic where you, maybe you set aside a specific animal to give to the Lord. Like you couldn't exchange that animal for another if something happened to the animal you were wanting to keep. Your promises had to be sure. Because unclean animals were absolutely useless around the tabernacle, for they couldn't be offered as sacrifices to the Lord. And examples for this would have been horses or chickens. If you wanted to give one of these animals to the Lord, the priest would set a value for it, and then you would have to add 20% to that value when you were purchasing the animal back. Verse 14. And when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as the priest values it, so it shall stand. If he who dedicates it wants to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. Since there were stipulations where a house, you want to give a house. There were dynamics where a house could have a practical use for the priest. I mean, they had to live someplace. Such a gift and that parameter, well, it could be accepted at face value. So a value would be made, the house would be accepted. No big deal. That, that said, if let's say you wanted to redeem the property, well, in that situation, you could pay whatever the price was that the priest would set, but you would have to, on top of the value, add 20% to redeem it back to yourself. Verse 16, if a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field of his possession, then your valuation shall be according to the seed for it. A homer of barley, a homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver if he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee. According to your valuation, it shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till the year of Jubilee, and it shall be deducted from your valuation. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth of the money to your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. So regarding a person's field, so we've, we've addressed animals, we've addressed homes, now we're addressing fields. If you dedicated to the Lord a part of your field, 
the value of the financial gift would be based upon what you were then able to make from the harvest of that portion. For example, a homer of barley seed was to be valued at 50 shekels of silver. That said, if you ever decided to redeem back that section of the field into your sole possession, you could do so. That was okay by taking then the normal valuation and then adding another 20% on top of it. Verse 20. But if he does not want to redeem the land, or if he sold the field to another man, it shouldn't be redeemed anymore. But the field, when it's released in the Jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priests. This is a unique situation. For whatever reason, the man does not want to redeem the field. Or maybe he sold it to another man. Now, when the year of Jubilee rolls around, which automatically returned the land back to its original owner, the owner, though, doesn't want it. At that point, the deed for the land would be given to the priests. Now, the Levites were not given any land by God in Israel as a possession. However, these, quote, devoted fields would become the exception. Verse 22, if a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, then the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee, and he shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to the one who owned the land as a possession. And all your valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 giras to the shekel. Again, you got to admire God kind of covering every potential basis, right? I mean, he's thorough. If, let's say, you purchased a field and decided to get it, dedicate it to the Lord, when the year of Jubilee naturally then returned the land back to its rightful owner, the priest, well, what do I do? I bought land, I dedicated it, but now I don't own it anymore. How can I fulfill this? Well, the priest would set a value for the land that you could pay in order to complete the offering. Uh, and again, there's additional stipulations. Now, Zach, <laughs> these things have any application. This is kind of laborious. I get it. But there is an application to this. I think an interesting one. You see, when it comes to giving to the Lord, not, we're not talking about a tithe or an offering. But let's say the Lord moves on your heart to give a, a material possession. Well, there's an application here in our New Testament context. Obviously, there are some things that you can donate that will have and meet a practical need of the ministry. Things you can donate to the church. A minibus. You can always use a bus. Toilet paper. Practical. Right? Coffee for the hospitality center. Cereal. Listen, if the Lord lays it on your heart to donate a beach house, we will accept that. We will respect your generosity. Like There are some things that can be useful, right? Material possessions. However, let's be real, there are other things that aren't so useful. Things you might be moved to give to the church that don't have a practical uh, function. Old sofas. <laughs> Broken down cars. And it's in those situations, okay, the Lord moves it on your heart. I want to give this old clunker to the church. 
Well, the church doesn't have a use for your old clunker. But you know what the church could use? Some extra funds. So sell that item and donate the proceeds. That's what's being articulated here. Now, as we move forward, God is going to list in the ver- next few verses some things that you couldn't give and then repurchase. Firstborn animals, devoted things, and tithes. Verse 26. But the firstborn of the animals, which should be the f- Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate. Whether it is an ox or sheep, it is the Lord. So these animals were already set aside for the offerings. These clean animals, firstborn animals. The exception, however, if the firstborn is of an cl- unclean animal, there's no use for that, right? So it's an unclean animal. Well, he shall redeem it according to its value, adding a fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold to your valuation. And that makes logical sense. Verse 28. Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast, or the field of his possession shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No person under the ban who may become doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but shall surely be put to death. Now, what is being communicated here? Sadly, this word devoted, devoted thing, it, it muddies up the water. A better translation would be cursed thing. Like the idea is there were times when God would designate something, someone, to be utterly and completely destroyed. The city of Jericho. And in such a situation, it was incumbent upon the people to thoroughly obey the commands of the Lord and not circumvent things by giving a percentage back as an offering in spite of blatant disobedience. A perfect example of a devoted offering can be found in 1 Samuel 15. In this passage, God commands King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. So Saul takes the armies and they go. God gives them a great victory, but Saul's not completely obedient. He kept back some of the spoils, sparing even the king, a man named Agag. Now he gets confronted, Saul, by the prophet Samuel. And Saul, here's his logic. He says that they spared the best sheep, the best oxen. Why? To sacrifice to the Lord. Saul's response is heavy. Samuel's response to Saul is heavy. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying his voice? Behold, to obey Saul is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, God has rejected you, Saul, from being king. In our day, this concept of a devoted offering, something that's cursed, it could be applied to tithing to the church on income earned through unethical acts or through illegal means. In an attempt, you know, to appease God. As if God was somehow okay with Tony Soprano shaking down people and running a strip club as a mob boss just because his wife Carmela gave a percentage of the spoils back to their Catholic parish. 
God says, no, I don't want these things. They're cursed. Verse 30. So we have the firstborn. It's already mine, so you can't give it to me. Devoted things, I've cursed it, don't want it. Verse 30, all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, it is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants at all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. And according and concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock or whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. And that's how it would work if you were herding sheep into a pen. They're in a single file line. You would drop the rod. Every tenth, that one would be removed. It was the Lord's. And that's how this thing, this thing worked. That's how you gave a tithe of your, of your flock. Continuing, he shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be, be redeemed. And again, if, if you've designated something to the Lord, so this little lamb is the Lord's, but it breaks its leg, you can't, you can't like make this exchange. One lamb for the healthy lamb or the healthy lamb for the other lamb. If you even attempt it, both are the Lord's, you messed up. <laughs> now regarding the tie. And we can define here a tithe as giving back to God a tenth of what he's given you. Simple enough. Whether it's a tithe of the seed of the land, fruit of the tree, or herd of the flock, these things were to be viewed by the people as already being God's. Like they're holy to the Lord. Therefore, you couldn't give them or dedicate them, etc. They were already God's. That, that's, how, that's how it was viewed. The tenth wasn't yours to begin with. Which is why then in Malachi it makes sense why God would take it really personally if you're not getting, you're robbing from him. That was mine. Firstborn, that's mine. Devoted thing, that's cursed. Your tithe, it's already mine. In regards to the tabernacle, and because the whole system demanded sacrifices, when it came to animals, clean animals, there was no wiggle room. However, and this is interesting, we're told that if a man wanted to redeem any of his tithes, regarding the harvest here, so let's say you decided to withhold a, the tithe of your harvest, so the, 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 what's been grown from the land or the fruit of the tree, you want to withhold that tithe. Let's say, you know, to endure a crisis <laughs> of some kind. This was permissible, interestingly enough. So if you're like, man, I'm in a real tough spot. And Lord, I know, I know the first 10% is yours. I know that. But man, my finances have gotten hammered. I'm really struggling. God, I just, I just don't know if I can do it this month. God, Lord, that's okay. That's all right. But when, you're, when you are able you know, to give me back what's mine, I, you need to add 20%. So if you wanted to skip a tithe, that's fine, as long as the, the time that you went and tithed, you made whole plus 20, which is kind of interesting to me, honestly. When lending money in Israel, if it was between Hebrew and Hebrew, what are we told? Zero interest. You were not to make interest on a loan to a brother. And yet if you were borrowing from God, God says, yeah, there's a 20% interest rate. <laughs> Blows my mind. Now, 
placing this in a larger context, this chapter in a larger context. We've been operating for the last few weeks under the premise that Ezra, this man Ezra, organized Leviticus to conclude specifically with these final three chapters of God speaking from Sinai as opposed to speaking from the tabernacle. And there's interesting things we, we've been able to unpack operating in that premise. But I find it really interesting that he chooses to conclude the entire book with this particular subject matter. And when you think about why would he do that and the context of where he is in the moment, ah, something interesting really does emerge. Like for 70 years, Israel has laid in ruins with the Hebrew people being exiled throughout Babylon. And we noted this last Sunday. Why had this happened? Well, it was the divine judgment of God. God used the Babylonians to judge the Jewish people because they had virtually, literally failed to obey everything God had said in the first 24 chapters of Leviticus. They had been disobedient. By the time Ezra comes around, comes onto the scene, it's been 80 years or so since the Persian king Cyrus had granted the Jews permission to return to their homeland. So 80 years. So 70 years they were in exile. Another 80 years later, that's when Ezra comes onto the scene. So this is 150 years after the Babylonian Empire had destroyed Jerusalem. Cyrus, the Persian king, had granted the Jews permission to return. In 538 B.C., the first wave of about 50,000 Jews came back under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. Ezra. So our time period is 458. He leads the second group of exiles back to the land. A group ranging small, four to 5,000. And their goal was to beautify the temple that had been built, rebuilt about 80 years earlier. And it was at this point that as Ezra's kind of reevaluating what's going on, as he's examining what's taken place, he spearheads a spiritual revival of the people by reinstituting many of the Levitical protocols that had been long forgotten. Now, ten years after this, if you're a student of Scripture and history, a man named Nehemiah would lead a third wave of exiles, having been granted permission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. For the minority of those exiles who had returned. And keep that in mind. Of the Hebrew people that had been exiled, it was a minority that actually came back. A minority. What Ezra says, what God says, what's articulated in Leviticus was clear. In spite of the rebellion, in spite of the judgment that happened, in spite of their, their disobedience, in spite of it all, they were still God's people. Like Leviticus told them that as an act of grace, God had brought them back to the land. In the same way that God had brought the, their forefathers out of the land of Egypt, God had brought them out of exile, restoring them to their rightful position. And Leviticus told them that in response to God's grace, they needed to remember that the essence of their relationship was never performance-driven, but it was founded on a sacrifice he'd accept to make atonement. Atonement for sin. And yet I believe that as Ezra was canonizing the Old Testament, as well as organizing the writings of Moses, 
which probably had existed as one volume, into now five separate books. Ezra specifically chooses to close out Leviticus with this chapter because the majority of God's people, the majority of the Hebrews, still remained in exile. Think about that for a moment. It gives you a context, right? For those who couldn't physically return to the land, Leviticus 27 provided for them relevant instructions how while they might have been away, they could still contribute to the work. Let's finish out our travels. Leviticus 27, verse 34. These are the commands which the Lord commanded Moses to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. For a lot of you, you can officially say you have read through the entire book of Leviticus. Closing things out, it's interesting to me that a book that's really centered on holiness, Leviticus, God God delivering His people out of Egypt, now organizing them to be His people where He would dwell in their midst, God separating them from the world to be a light unto the world, that there's a better way to live. Holiness. This book, it's interesting to me that it ends with giving. (laughs) You see, God knew the way His nation handled money was going to be paramount, not only concerning the way that they would treat one another, the way society would function, but mostly how they would relate in the end with Him. As Jesus echoed, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, it's the truth. Not everybody, not all of us, have the time, ability, or calling to serve God in some kind of official, full-time capacity. Just be real with that, right? But every one of us does have the ability to make some money. You see, the question then centers really, ultimately, in the end, upon what do each of us do with the resources God has provided? That's the question. You know, I've heard it said, and I completely agree, but money, money is a terrible master. (laughs) But it can be a wonderful servant. Isn't that true? God structured the nation specifically to revolve around this tabernacle in the midst, this meeting place where he would interact with his own. And then he called from amongst the multitude the Levites, the priests, commissioning them not to worry about their own provisions, but to focus their energies on helping the nation walk with God. They were to demonstrate, illustrate for the people the life God wanted them all to live. And then the Lord in his wisdom called everyone else to give, to support not just this place of meeting, but those charged with her care. He wanted his his meeting place and his servants to have the resources to operate and function. And yet, what's fascinating about chapter 27 in particular, yes, this whole thing ends with God talking about giving. But up to this point, most of what God has spoken about concerning giving has been mandatory, obligatory. You've had to do it. 
But chapter 27, it's different, isn't it? This is not mandated anything. This giving, well, this was voluntary. Like, consider how everything discussed in this chapter, from the dedicating of yourself or your child to the Lord, to the giving of property, whether it be animals or a field or a home. All of these things were predicated, all the Lord's instructions, all of His commandments are predicated first upon a free-willed expression of the individual to give. God asks nothing in this chapter of anyone. All the Lord does is explain the right and wrong way we can move forward when we're stirred to give as a response to all that He's given. And frankly, I can't think of a more fitting climax to a book intending to establish the precedent for grace. As we close out our time in this amazing book, never forget the key to understanding Leviticus is not to view it as a list of things that you should be doing, but instead to see these things as God intentionally setting up a framework for the work Jesus would do for us. Every subject we've encountered in Leviticus, and I hope I've done an adequate job, every subject, whether it be these three chapters at the end where God's speaking from Sinai or the 24 chapters beforehand where He's speaking from the tabernacle, every subject matter. (laughs) And I'm not going to recap them all other than to say they all point to Jesus. They all find their fulfillment in Jesus. It's about His work. Not only has Jesus paved the way for all of us to have a relationship with God, that Jesus liberated us from the world, freed us from bondage, made atonement for sin. Not only because of Jesus do we have God in our midst, in our hearts, in our lives. Jesus functioning as a high priest in in the halls of heaven, But everything that Jesus did for us, we could never have done for ourselves. Not only does it make us right with God, but it also naturally influences everything else. Jesus' work, it creates this relationship that I can have with the Lord, but it also, in turn, from that relationship, what does it do? It affects the way I live, naturally. It affects the way we order our lives. It should affect the way we treat each other. In Leviticus, God establishes the precedent for grace. As well as the way His grace changes everything. And so, Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Word.